to the Overthinking TV Recap, Downton Abbey Season 4, Episode 3. Wait, what? What, Pete? 3? What? Well, it's episode... Okay. (laughs) British Episode 3, American Episode 2, I should clarify. Uh, The Americans, of course, got to watch a daring double episode last week. Our recap really only covered the first half of that episode. Uh, We'd been watching the British versions, uh, and we had, as such, neglected Episode 2. But we'll jump right into Episode 3 to catch up with where the American show is. And I don't think we'll have missed much in recounting events. For Episode 3 takes a rather drastic turn that I dare say informs the way the show shall proceed from here. If I seem disillusioned and much less happy to be watching Downton Abbey than I was last week, then you have noticed my temperament. Uh, gentlemen, uh, I don't even want to go through the, the, the coy, cute talkings and goings-on over tea. I don't want to talk about the paradigmatic scenes where Lady Grantham discusses the logic of the English nobility. I feel like we need to discuss the elephant in the room, the giant crime that changes the face of Downton Abbey forever, I'll say. I'm talking, of course, about Samson cheating at cards. No! Um, I'm just saying, like, you ever been watching a TV show that you thought was kind of nice? Like, bad things would happen, but they'd always be kind of fantasy bad things, like what happened in an Agatha Christie novel, or would have a certain sort of rakish nobility to them, like people people, things would happen in such a high dramatic fashion that it wouldn't feel like real suffering. And then there was an uncomfortably uh, realistic, vicious rape and beating at the end of one of the episodes. That ever happened to you guys? Why, yes, Pete, I have seen The Sopranos. Oh, okay, there we go, there we go. Uh, But yes, Downton Abbey, uh, Downton Abbey got real this week. Uh, It it got real, that's for sure. Um, With a drastic change in tack with uh and i guess trigger warnings you know all around uh if if you're into that sort of thing um for the tragic and depressing and brutal uh beating and rape of anna at the end of this episode of downton abbey which has me very sad and i know she's not a real person and this didn't really happen to her but i'm like really upset and i'm really bummed out and i feel like there's really there's a lot to say about this scene about its effect on what's going to happen for the rest of the show and i I don't doubt for a second that we will continue to be talking about this event as we continue to talk about downton abbey but this week i do also want to talk about kind of where it lies in the history of downton abbey up until this point and why of course everyone's facebook feeds and twitter accounts were just bursting with just disappointed and irate and pissed off and and just wretched downton abbey fans decrying uh, the failure of this episode to entertain and or its capacity to displease uh but we have to talk to our panel we have a, a panel of three uh we're all taking our trays in our room tonight there's no proper dinner but they are they are mighty trays nonetheless uh feasted upon by great artists so i'll say hello to ben adams how are you doing ben tonight i'm i'm doing okay it's been a while since i since i watched this episode so i'm i'm recovered fully by now yeah it, definitely yeah we won't be spoiling anything that happens in the future i just watched it i'm i'm watching it as i'm watching the episodes as they air on american television uh, and my colleagues uh being anglophiles watched them as they aired in the uk and as such are a little bit ahead but we've been very courteous and we'll only be discussing plot elements up until this point so yeah so you've recovered ben i have yet to recover i'm still i'm still reeling and still have to work through some some things but you've managed to refresh yourself indeed Indeed. And so, I mean, what is your sort of sort of quick, I mean, we'll come back to it, but what's your sort of five-second take on where, what this scene did to your enjoyment of this episode and Downton Abbey in general? 
so it definitely changes kind of changes the expectations of kind of the social contract between you and the show like i feel like for most any of any art you know i, I wrote an article about the uh the kangaroo jack moment where I, where I talked about movies that were kind of like misadvertised. Um, but I feel like for the most part, you go into a movie with a certain expectation. Like you go into a horror movie expecting to be scared or startled. And so like those things are kind of like part of the contract with the, um, the, the, the filmmaker, that that's what's going to happen. And so if you name elements in a romantic comedy, like in the middle of Love Actually, like somebody jumps up, you know, somebody jumps out behind the screen just to scare you. Um, you know, and brutally stab someone. Like, that would be a bit of a violation, um, <laughs> in the yeah, sense like, of like of, of this contract that you have of like this is not what I signed up signed up for. And it's, so somewhat, I felt that this scene, and just be, just because of the, I'm not sure the plot element itself, but just the sheet, kind of raw brutality of it, um, particularly and uh, the weird contrast that it had with the what was going on upstairs with the the concert. It just kind of changed what I was expecting watching my kind of somewhat trashy soap about, you know, the British aristocracy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we'll talk more about what's trashy about it and what's redeemable about it, what has been redeemable about it at this point, and whether it can be redeemed in the future. But first, we must introduce Matt Rather. Matt, how are you doing? And what's your take on the brutal rape and beating of Anna? <laughs> I can't even have fun saying it. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm not supposed to have fun saying it. Why on earth would you have like, fun? Yeah. But this is an entertainment, right? Aren't we supposed to be having a good time? Well, I, that's that's an interesting. I mean, that's an interesting question, right? Because hasn't Downton Abbey up to this point sort of made a meal of pinpointing social issues? But they were sort of social issues that you could take at a political level or a higher level of abstraction. Social issues like the rise of a professional class, right? Or you know, I don't know the 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 decline of of the aristocracy or. Or uh, uh, servants, you know, I don't know, servants marrying Lady Sybil. What? And like, (laughs) so the idea that, um, you know, that is sort of personal, personal social issue. I mean, this was clearly like a capital letters, very special episode, right, of, of. Of Downton Abbey, and it it strikes me as as something that that television with a, with a claim to seriousness does uh, from time to time, um, which is sort of do something that is uh, that that breaks the mold of the series, right? That operates on on a slightly different wavelength or a slightly different level of abstraction, even than than the rest of the series does. I, I'm thinking now of the episode of Dawson's Creek where uh, Joey Potter is walking home. The episode actually has its own title that's like uh, shown on screen um, as though it were like a special edition or movie of the week or something like that. It's called Downton Abbey. Uh, Downton Abbey. It's called Dawson's Creek. Downton Abbey and Dawson's Creek are two different geographical locations, but their uh, their relationship is the subject of my PhD thesis. And... Uh, no, this episode is called Daw- uh, Dawson's Creek colon Downtown Crossing. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I live in Boston, and that's like um, the major subway station by the corner mall. And it takes uh, place. It takes place there. Oh, it uh, does. Oh, okay, okay. So it is not a coincidence. No, no, it actually uh, they, they, it actually they, is set there. 
Okay, cool, cool. And they buy and, some Skechers or some cheap Chinese food? Or? No, uh, Joey Potter is walking home alone at night and is mugged uh, oh, on, oh. on the street. And it's a that whole... That happens there, too. That's, that's realistic, yes. <laughs> it's a, but, it's a, but it's deserted except for Joey and her mugger. She does the thing that yeah. you must never, ever, ever do and talks back to her mugger and argues and struggles with him and uh it's just an hour of the uh of the two of them together it's a sort of two-hander uh one act play um rather rather than that right like and that and that's uh that's the sort of thing that that television that wishes to take itself seriously or wishes for you to take it uh seriously um does I thought in that respect it was kind of a cynical move. I think that that if you consider what's actually shown on screen, um, I I wonder about the label of calling it it brutal. It's a brutal crime, but I'm not sure that its depiction is brutal because in fact, uh, and I re I rewatched it. Um, just a, just a couple hours ago before recording this um and it's it's depiction actually most of it is a long shot where they're pulling back in the servant's hallway and all you hear is the sounds uh of this rape taking place uh viz screaming right and that's that's pretty brutal i suppose and i suppose it's, it it has a brutal effect to um, to uh, sort of give you a, a, a mental image or a sort of imaginary picture of what's going on with with just the sounds, but what's what's depicted on screen is still kind of PG thirteen, right? It doesn't it doesn't uh, the 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 event that is being depicted is not a PG thirteen event, but but what actually shows up visually is. Uh, uh, I, I won't say that it's coy, but it is um, more elusive, right, than it is uh, clinical. And and this, I mean, this you can contrast against the awful, really terribly unpleasant rape scene in uh, The Sopranos, which is which is unsparing in the way that it comes in on on the character Doctor Melfi's face and just kind of like stays there the whole time. I, I don't even like to sort of contemplate. Um, I also thought, I mean, I had particular thoughts about the intercutting between upstairs and downstairs, which I thought was crass, right? Because what is, what is the message, right? That's, that's being sent from the, the intercutting. Is it that the people upstairs are somehow bad or somehow culpable or are somehow callous or are turning a blind eye or a deaf ear or are deafened by, you know, I don't know, the sound of the, the, the singer singing, or is it, you know, that, uh, it is extraordinarily poignant how great suffering can coexist side by side with great beauty. And that's like a, a, a terrible aspect of life. I mean, but it's not a terrible aspect of life because the the because of the contrivance of of putting those two things together. And it, you know, I don't know. It seemed to be trying to drive to 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 cynically ring out uh, you know more pathos from the situation and and not content to let the situation have uh, the pathos that it had already, which is plenty. Yeah. I think two things. I think you're dead on about the intercutting, but I think the intercutting also fills the gap a little bit for 
how I how I assume. I mean, you have a totally great point. It isn't really depicted graphically on screen as something that happens that's brutal, but it feels like, at least to me, that it's brutal. One of the reasons it feels like it's brutal is that the intercutting is kind of ripped right out of Scorsese. Right, it's 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 like a mob. It's like a mob killing, or even like even like The Godfather. It's like something out of a mob movie where they're they're playing the music, whether it's like seventies music or eighties music or Italian music, and there's like a horrible act of violence that's happening. And the sort of you know Michael Corleone is washing his hands if it's like a Coppola movie, or like you know Ro, you know Robert De Niro is like sneering and like walking on the street. But I, I just feel like or Leonardo DiCaprio or what have you is you know doing a bunch of coke. And- a similar scene in, in the fifth element, by the way. Where, oh, yeah, the, yeah, there where is. The is blue, that, yeah, the opera scene. Yeah, the That's blue true. the blue cone-headed diva is uh is singing and there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of terrible violence yeah. going on as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it does also like it also it recalls like hacking scenes in Die Hard where it's like, you know, where where they're like listening to the music. But in that case, the villain is listening to the music while they're doing the bad thing, which is not what's happening here. But there is sort of a way in which the the, the juxtaposition in these mob movies of high art and high violence is kind of an indictment of culture in general. This idea that, like, look at the the, the beauty, the ugliness that uh, high culture doesn't manage to cover up or obscure about who people really are. Like, this is the world that you really live in, and it's dark. And then the and the and you can no amount of opera can wash that away, right? Like, and and in fact, you're somewhat fascinated by the violence as well as by the uh, music. And that's how it is. I mean, it's not depicted that way in this one, but that's how it's often depicted. And I feel like there's an influence there where there's a poetry and balletic quality to the way that the violence is depicted that compares and, and uh, resonates with the way that the music is played. So for me, hearing the music, watching the scene happen, I'm imagining that she's being like Tarantino'd in the other room, right? Like that, that this is like of a piece with those kinds of movies. And that's, that's awful. I don't want that to happen um, to any human being, you know, let alone to this character who's so sweet. Uh, and I guess the other side is that it is, it is more brutal to not show it. You know, that's sort of the closure phenomenon. Uh, you know, you don't show where the axe hits. You just show the axe swinging and then you cut to the next panel, right? It's like, um, that's the Scott Henderson understanding comics, right? Like, Sure, and let me, I mean, let me say, I recently watched, because it was on Netflix, I recently watched uh, a, a fantastic... Psycho? Um, oh. <laughs> no, not, not Psycho, but um, uh, The Hunt for Red Which October. Which the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the Hunt for and Red October, okay. I was so surprised by... Uh, Alec Baldwin's gunshot that kills the, the that spoiler alert kills the cook at the end uh, and doesn't hit the nuclear reactor because there are some things around here that don't react too well to bullets. Um, <laughs> that that you don't even see the muzzle flash, right? And so for the history of cinema, our current sort of lurid, uh, you know, sort of unflinching depiction of everything, uh, especially violence. Right is is the exception rather than rather than the rule. And and Pete, what you bring up is an interesting point about this. The opera is a signifier that something terrible is going on. Yeah, it, which is I mean, at this point, opera is more likely to show up in a movie or television show in order to cover up a mob hit than in, to like actually <laughs> portray people going to the opera. Right, like because it doesn't happen. What's up? Another great, another actually great example of this genre is uh, the West Wing episode where President Bartlett is, makes the decision to order the hit on uh, I forget the but one of the foreign leader that's involved in terrorism. 
and he's doing it while there's there's opera singing in the background and uh it, it's kind of similar in that there's there there's this balletic navy seal type raid going on at the same time that he's listening to the the shakespeare being sung mm-hmm. sharif yeah. Sharif, yeah, Omar Sharif, thank you. He, he did not like it. Um, and then there, there's this other aspect, which is that the actress who plays Anna plays the trauma of this event, like, straight down the middle, uh, in a very naturalistic manner. She's, like, Anna suffers a great deal more from this attack than, like, Lady Sybil does from her aristocratic dyingness. Right, like, and or, that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, and, right, and or Lady Mary does from her. I mean, at, lest we forget, yeah. uh, please remember Mr. Pamuk from season yes. one of Downton <laughs> Abbey, right? Who is the gold standard of unexpected brutality on Downton Abbey, who just seems to sort of go to the farm in the middle of a sex act, <laughs> right? Like, just sort of is, is silently asleep. Uh, and and Lady Mary is aghast, right? And then they have to sort of scurry around, you know, like children on Christmas Eve to try to hide this guy without getting caught by their parents. Um, One of the – what she said about playing it down the middle is I think part of the reason that this contrasts so much with a a standard episode of Downton Abbey. One of of the pleasures of Downton Abbey is the way that everyone kind of has this stiff British upper lip. In an almost cartoonish fashion, but just in the extent that even the servants talk in this very, um, not practice style, but very high-minded style. And that they kind of act in the same way, where they don't react as strongly as you might imagine to some of these emotional events. Whereas this, the acting, the event could have been, it could be a modern-day drama, and the acting would be essentially the same. Yeah. The, like the, the emotions being yeah. portrayed. And that's very that's very strange for Downton Abbey, where even where people die there's a very kind of repressed upper class reaction to it um that just isn't on display at all in this scene yeah and it is i mean this is part of the you know the joy and humor of downton abbey is that it is actually more threatening to these people for there to be a toaster in the kitchen than for there to be a murder in the bedroom Right, like it's like that's the thing that really upsets people. It's like I don't know what to do with this toaster. Oh, this mixer. I'm going. I, I'm going to lose my livelihood. Um, and now, okay, but let's talk about the other. I mean, there's the other side of it too, which is that you could not have this happen if Anna were to be like Downton Abbey raped, if she were to be a shirking violet of sexual assault, if she were to face an abuser with the same self possession and grace that you know Tom faces the men that beat him for his gallantry under the bridge, right? Like. Like, that's a great example of what to compare this to, right? Because Tom gets beaten beaten at the cricket tournament. Thomas. Uh, Thomas, sorry. Yeah. Thomas gets beaten at the at – the, I'm sorry, Barrow. It's Barrow now, sir. <laughs> uh, Barrow is beaten at the cricket tournament for his gallantry towards Jimmy, and it's, it's a hate crime what's happening to – to Barrow, to Thomas at that point, right? Like they're beating him, or they, they're beating him for being gay, right? Or, they, or at least partially. Or at least that's what the scene is sort of communicates to you. But there's a grace to it. And there's a way in which you get the sense that it's not really hurting him because he's doing it with this noble attitude. And that, tr- that like that, the way that that happens in real life, the way that people in real life are pressured to act with that sort of dismissiveness towards people who sexually assault them is like such a pernicious problem that actually really causes huge difficulty for people and causes a ton of pain in the world and is also like very politically charged because people are rightfully working very hard to change the culture and change the institutions so this sort of thing isn't acceptable you know there's not a huge problem of people gallantly self-sacrificing the you know their faces to scuffery at sporting events 
Like, that's not something that, like, affects, you know, one out of every four college women or college guy, right? It's like, oh, you know, there's this, there's this silent killer of, of like, thick-necked suspender ruffians who are going around and beating people at our, uh, at our sporting events. Um, especially, you know, that's not really the kind of danger. I mean, yes, there are people at sporting events who beat up gay guys, and that's bad. But um, it's not the same it, the, the relationship with the problems that are happening in reality is different than the political, than the experiential, than the cultural reaction that someone in real life who is like Anna would have to something like that happening to her. So it would be totally unacceptable, totally unacceptable uh, to have Anna be okay with what is happening. So I want to say, we're, we are, I'm displeased with the episode. I feel like in general people are displeased with the episode, but it's not like I wanted them to treat this differently. It's not like I wanted them to be more casual about it and have the same sort of event happen in a way that's more in, in line with what happened in the rest of the show. The, the, the dis- Once you've made the decision that this is the thing that's going to happen, you have changed the tone of the show. It's not like executing it differently would have made the show better. It just would have made it more offensive. Uh, and I think that the audience would have responded even more negatively to that. So um, it's a matter of like, I mean, yes, this is important. It should be shown. Perhaps if this were a very special episode of Downton Abbey... Wait, 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 Pete, what? because those, those two statements are not equivalent, right? Like, this is important and it should be shown here, now, in this context, well, yes. on this show, right? Exactly. Those aren't the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it should be shown in general. So we shouldn't feel like we have to be silent about this right. issue. But it doesn't mean that every single show has to show it happening in this sort of way, right? Like, or it has to show it at all. Like, it doesn't have to be about it. We, we have to – I mean, you, you were saying it. You know what you're ta- you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, this show doesn't necessarily have to be about that, right? And it's, it's not to say that we shouldn't cover up or we shouldn't whitewash or we shouldn't be silent about – uh, sexual assault, which is a real thing that happens and is awful and is a terrible crime and, you know, should enter our storytelling about ourselves and should enter our self-conception because it's a real thing in the world, is not to say that it 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 must be – that depiction must be everywhere. Uh, no storytelling element. I mean, you know what I mean? Not every, um, not every story must involve lightsabers, though I, I believe we all can agree that lightsabers are awesome and should be depicted. Right, um, lightsabers ought to be in stories, but uh, but not every story, right? Right, and and so um, right, and so that I I think the the issue it's not uh, the issue that I take with it is not how to uh, is not how it's depicted. It's that it's that someone thought that that well, and in fact, Julian Fellows thought right because I think he writes every episode of this show himself. Um, thought that it would be a good idea that this was the right thing to do with these characters um, at the right time. And, and I, I must confess, I had the thought, um, hasn't poor Anna been through enough? I mean, her husband was, <laughs> was falsely imprisoned after yes. all, right? And, and though she was, loyal, she was loyal and, you know, a paragon of every sort of virtue all through that, uh, why must she be made to suffer these, these, um, you know, these, these terrible, uh, things. Well, you mentioned that it's when I, when I was watching episodes one and two, there were just a couple of really great moments between Anna and Bates and my wife and I were like, they're the best. Like they're a great (laughs) couple. Like they're they're this night. They're both like these virtuous characters. And, and I actually had that thought. I was like, I wonder where they're going with like their relationship because like, you know, they're, they're, they're set up in a way that makes it, um, 
there's there's not a whole lot more drama to play out unless you do something radical like this. Um, yeah. I mean, it definitely puts in context that line from the first episode. You know, I need to show him the quality of the upholstery before he begins hammering nails into it, which was like the foreboding statement that we pointed out or that I pointed out and then we all talked about of like what's going to happen this season. Is that like, look at how beautiful everything is. Now, terrible thing, terrible thing, terrible thing. But I was imagining Meg Ryan-esque traffic accidents, right? Like, I was imagining people getting cities of angels. I wasn't necessarily imagining <laughs> this sort of thing happening. Well, okay, so I, I think that the interest, I mean, not interesting. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult to find a, a language for it because at every moment that you talk about it, you, you want to acknowledge that it's horrible. So let's just take that as read, or at least I, I hope you will. I hope you will forgive me if I take that as read and and just kind of continue to talk about it as a phenomenon and a thing that exists in the world right Right. the 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 interesting thing about it from a storytelling point of view going forward is going to be the um uh the idea of mary as a foil uh, not not mary yes mary lady mary as a foil for anna um that is to say uh lady mary is entering an enormous expansion um sort of of her own self-conception of her agency in the world uh of how she um is uh you know going to going to interact and there's a lot to say about sort of feminism and about uh women's increasing role in the public sphere and uh you know do, doing business and sort of um taking taking care of herself uh, and in the the you know the letter that we get from Matthew, the sort of the testament that um, confers on her uh, as the sole heir, as his sole heir, uh, half of half of the estate, the other half still belonging to the current earl. Um, and and j- you just need to think back a little bit to how Matthew got half of the estate. It's because he had a bunch of cash that came to him that he invested in, in the estate uh, and became partners with Robert, because normally the current earl would be the, the owner outright um, of the estate. So Matthew got half of it early, Right, because uh, because of a cash transaction, um, and so now Mary is going to do that, and she is going. I mean, Mary's a rocket to the moon, and uh, uh, you see that now. Um, there's a, a gentleman at the the thing, and he looks like he might be interested in her, and and they're dancing together until she is reminded of Matthew and uh, runs upstairs. And uh, you know what? Um, I I hope I'm not spoiling anything if I say that he's not the last. Right. That's going to start to start coming around. And so so Mary's sort of uh, uh, expansion or her sort of apotheosis, um, I think, needs to be countered by something. Right. Because you can't just have it be, oh, this is the feminism season. You know, this is the this is the sisters are doing it for themselves uh, season. Right. I think I think that 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 would be sort of whitewashing the, the historical um, record in a way that we that we wouldn't be able to uh, that we wouldn't be able to accept, and the um, you know the the idea that uh, if something terrible happens to Anna, like her options are severely constrained, right? She really does not have recourse to uh, law, you know, to to remedies at to like the remedies of a criminal justice system. You know, she really doesn't have recourse to. Uh, even a sense of of 
a vindication in in that she didn't do do anything wrong. And so this this I think is an important relationship between between Mary's sort of expansion or apotheosis and Anna's uh, feeling that she has been that she has been degraded. Um, and and shows us that you know perhaps I don't know that there's still a long way to go or that you know all is not completely well or there's something still rotten from a feminist point of view in uh, in the society. Right. Well, I, one of the the other parallels in this episode is the Tom and Edna plot line because we get the same kind of pan away from the door um, to a kind of a lie over what's going. Although it's interesting there because in the Anna case, it's clear what's happening. Like we don't need to see what's beyond the door to un- to know what's happening in that case. Whereas in the Tom and Edna case, we can guess, but it's less clear exactly what's about to unfold uh, behind the door. Uh, but I think there's still this interesting relationship of the, in this case, while Edna's some portrayed as somewhat predatory, it's still kind of the class difference, uh, both class difference in that because she's poor and Tom is now, if not wealthy, then higher class, and also the male-female uh, power dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to say, like, yes, definitely. I mean, I, I was totally going to transition the other way and say, like, speaking of building rockets for the space program and speaking of whitewashing things, uh, how is Edith's adventures with Nazism progressing, right? Like, which, I mean, I, again, I haven't seen how the season goes. I just have been laughing that Edith looks like Edith might be headed in the direction of Germany around the time that Hitler is headed in the direction of primacy. And the idea that Edith would somehow get mixed up in that in, like, a zany adventure and that that's what Downton Abbey would turn out to be about uh, is something that has occupied me from a humorism Do you get the sense from what's happened thus far that she's going with him to Germany? Uh, well, I just feel like that would be really funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I, I fair enough. That would be, I mean, I, you are correct, sir. <laughs> I mean, I do get that sense. I mean, I think this is kind of to some extent moving chess pieces around the board. I mean, anticipating more Downton Abbey seasons down the road. Like, Germany is where the interesting history is going to be happening for the next 20 or so odd years, uh, particularly in re- as it regards to Britain. And so like having a character there that they can talk about and get updates from like allows them to talk about these things in a more natural way. Yeah. Although it would be really funny if Edith just dated a series of guys who like went off to go do things that were interesting in history and it looked like she was going to get to go too and then she just didn't. So it's like <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean in my aeroplane, the spirit of St. Louis. Oh, I can't believe that we'll go on this wonderful journey together. It's like, "Oh, yes, got to go. See you later, Edith." It's like, "Oh, okay. I'll hang out over here. Thank you." Yeah, it's like, "Oh, <laughs> I I just invented the the formula for trans, transferring matter into energy. It's like, oh, that sounds great. Let's go celebrate. It's like, oh, sorry, I got some plans with some dudes. I gotta go. All right, that's okay. Sorry. Although that would have already happened. Uh, you know, like I don't. I think she's a little late already for general relativity, right? Um, like Edith can't date Einstein at this point. Boy, would her parents be aghast. See, so listen to the uh, Downton Abbey I want to watch, not the Downton Abbey <laughs> crying all the time. So um, you watch like the Forrest Gump version of Downton Abbey where it's just like shoehorning the characters into historical moments. 
Yes, I want to watch the Life of Brian version of the Forrest Gump version of Downton Abbey, where it is like <laughs> a series of historical moments are happening to characters in Downton Abbey, but we're watching the life of the other people at Downton Abbey who have to hang out in this Northern England manner, like while all those other things are happening, which was the point of the first season, which was the best one, which was like, oh, it's the Titanic. What's happening at dinner? Right? Like, um, even like, oh, Matthew's in the war, which is like, you know, a reasonably nice sound sound stage or outdoor set that they've put together but is clearly not actually the war right and we're going to like jump back to the living room to see what's happening there um i mean it's a home front kind of thing uh, it's about the you know the place it has a very strong sense of place and what is happening in this place um and maybe that's what we need right now in the show that I feel like we don't really have all that much of. Is I don't really feel the sense of place all that much. They've, they're trying to introduce it, uh, but maybe it's because they're leaving the area of Downton Abbey more often now, like the sort of um, going to, to to York for the music and whatnot uh, is kind of a is is that kind of stuff has already sort of picking up steam, right? Like the the Rose Train is leaving the station. Um, and so we don't really get to see as much that's happening in the actual house in terms of like the jazz age or whatever the heck is going on right now. Or is that the next episode, which I actually watched ahead on? And I shouldn't tell people about. <laughs> uh, is that there's, there's jazz music. Spoiler alert. One of um, the, I mean, one of the effects of this to me is that it it sort of split Downton Abbey and split my enjoyment of it into everything having to do. I mean, and you know, we've watched we've watched ahead, but. You know, I, I think it it's not spoilery to say that it's split it into everything that has to do with Anna and with this event and its aftermath and everything else. Yeah, right? it, it's it's somewhat similar to Friday Night Lights uh, season two, where if you're familiar, I don't know if you, I know Matt, you did some Friday Night Lights in no season spoilers, two. No spoilers, no spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> spoiler was... alert! Spoiler alert for Landry in Friday Night Lights season two. <laughs> in season two of Friday Night Lights, one of the characters, Landry, uh, is involved in this event that's it's come very soap. It's portrayed very soap opery, not nearly with the the gravity or anything like that um, on display here. But he accidentally kills someone in a attempted rape of one of his classmates, and then they. But the ridiculous part is they try to like cover up the crime and hide the body in the river, and so while all the rest of this stuff in Friday Night Lights is going on with like obviously football because that's what the show is about. Like Landry is like dodging his father who is a sheriff and trying to cover up the fact that he killed someone, and so the stakes are like completely off from the rest of the show. And it's one of those things where, like, for the rest of the show, they never mentioned it again. And I, I always wanted Landry to just, like, shut up a bully or something. But I'd be like, you know, I killed a guy once and I got away with it or something like that. But they, <laughs> they completely – it was the same thing where there was that show and there was another show kind of parallel to, parallel to and separate from one another. Right. Yeah. It's always a little bit interesting when the sideshow is more serious and grave and has a, a darker and also kind of more significant tone than the main show, because it's so much more of a comfortable arrangement for it to be the opposite, right? Like, you know, what if the show is really about Kramer and then all of a sudden it jumps to Seinfeld and he's trying to carry on a mature relationship with a woman in like one scene. And then the rest of it is about Kramer trying to like smoke cigars in his Kenny Rogers Roasters franchise, right? Like, and it, <laughs> or like, what if it's all about George trying to carry a frogger machine across the street and then it cuts to like for like one scene to you know uh elaine trying to like negotiate the product design at jay peterman's catalog and whatnot it just i don't know it seems more comfortable to have the lighter stuff be the the stuff that is the the icing rather than the cake 
uh, and then have the sort of serious stuff be the steak and not the sizzle um, and all that stuff. But yeah, I know what you're talking about because, you know, from whence came Todd in Breaking Bad. Uh, from- <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you think Todd is the comic relief in Breaking Bad and then he turns out to be but, darker. But, but- uh, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, speaking of people who are really who, who are true villains, Samson and his cheating. Adults. Let's talk about, I mean, let's talk about Landry and Todd, by the way. <laughs> right? It's funny that, anyway, Samson, yes, what a, what a tyke. What a tyke, indeed. <laughs> what a tyke. So Robert refers to him as a tyke, and we were looking this up. Uh, this is apparently uh, slang that fell largely out of use a long, long time ago. Uh, you can look it up on Google and see the chart of the usages of the word tyke. It's an old, uh, it comes from Old Norse, uh, a nasty word for a female dog, uh, and then came to mean a mongrel or a cur, and by association, an unpleasant, a coarse man, someone who ought not to be associated with. So when when Robert says that we shan't, we shouldn't invite a, a Samson back because he's a, a bit of a tyke. Uh, I just thought that was a wonderful little piece of linguistic flavor, um, as well as a lie, because you shouldn't invite him back because you lose all your <laughs> but, money. But yeah, <laughs> money. It seems so trivial, and I hope that you know that uh, that Captain Nazi has has a has a bunch of other skills. Is is there? Do you, I mean, don't. Revealed that everyone in Downton Abbey has a different prison skill that they developed like during their criminal past. And right, Bates to, like, is yeah, Bates is a forger. Yeah, right? and Samson. Yep, yep. I, I'm just I'm just thinking we have not seen the last of Samson. <laughs> is it is it gonna is it gonna have to be um what's his name uh oh gosh not or, will not will not Fred not Arthur what's the name of the the tall awkward footman. Oh gosh! Why can I not Alfred. remember his name? Alfred. Uh, as Alfred is going to have to bake a cake with a file in it in order to get them all out of prison. <laughs> but men can't cook. It's crazy. All right. I think I, I think our sense. I think the general fatigue in discussing the goings on around Downton that usually uh, in, uh, enamor us so is reflective enough of a recap of what has happened uh, that we shall leave it for today. But if you want to talk about both about the the, the actual turning point event, the defining event, the thing that happened in uh, season uh, four, episode two slash three of Downton Abbey, or if you want to talk about any of the more frivolous things that happened, or about Tone, or about Landry, or about Todd, or about the down the uh, Downtown Crossing episode of Dawson's Creek, uh, join us for the show notes. Give us a five-star review. Subscribe to our podcast. Uh, this podcast is its own feed on iTunes, but we also have the Overthinking It podcast. If you like this, which is our mainstream podcast, we cover movies, uh, music, entertainment, all sorts of general news with this same sort of level of detail and collegiality. But for all this... You must visit us. Visit us where? Visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.